It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris. What? Are we recording? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I'm living vicariously in climbing now through you oh, and wow. your Instagram. That's how bad it's gotten for me. <laughs> I kind of uh, want to congratulate you, actually, but we'll talk about that later. Oh, thanks. Whatever it is, I'll, I'll accept your <laughs> praise because uh, I need I need someone to build me up right now. But if you don't know, I had shoulder surgery, so I, I can't climb right now, and I'm just watching these like perfect fall days go by so so slowly um <laughs> it is quite nice out right now it's in Colorado. so nice oh my god and i saw that you climbed uh you climbed with your your wife my wife yes my my now we call her my wife yeah as of this year yeah we went out for her birthday it was her idea to go do a big route she likes to try to do like a big multi-pitch route on her birthday Mm-hmm. And uh, we went and did this route called Mudflap Girl, mm-hmm. which is in Glenwood Canyon. And uh, Glenwood Canyon is not known for its excellent rock. And uh, But there was an interesting tale behind this route is that I put it up, actually. Oh. Yeah, I put it up with uh, Jeff Aki in 2005. Okay. And it's like nine pitches, eight pitches, depends on how you do it, up this big choss wall called the mud wall which is inviting Mm -hmm. um in grizzly creek and glenwood canyon it's a really awesome wall i mean it's big it's cool but i remember saying and thinking and we put it up on lead ground up and we were it was right after i was had been up in canada a lot and so i'd learned i'd started drilling on lead with a power drill like where you're free climbing and then try to drill without hanging so we were kind of doing it in that style. And I remember thinking afterwards that it was the worst rock that I had ever tried to free climb on. <laughs> right. And it was like tottering, choss, dirty, dusty, few good good moves here and there, few bands. It's like multi-bands. You know, there's like okay bands and then there's these choss bands. And yeah, anyway, so we did it and uh, it got written up. It's got put in the book. And then I started hearing from people how good it was. Hmm. Like our friend Mary Harlan, you know, she loves it. She's like, it's great. I've done it like three times. And all the comments on Mountain Project are kind of pretty positive about it. And people even say it has good rock, which I'm, I've been for the last like 10 years, like, what are these people talking about? That root's terrible. It's a choss pile. But I sort of um, got convinced and, and Steph did too. And so we went back and did it on Saturday. Was yeah. it as, no. as bad as you remember? I think it's pretty bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the I thought this story was going to go in a different direction. Like, no, oh, it's cleaned up, and no. it's now it's like a new classic. And <laughs> I mean, I think it's cleaned up a little bit, but because I mean, I was knock like like knocking off like these little standing towers of rock, you know, mm-hmm. where they're it's like five blocks like Jenga'd, and then you push it all off. And I mean, I was doing that on lead, right? So I'd like you know, put a daisy on a, on a, on a piece or a bolt or whatever, and like try to move my rope out of the way as best I could and then knock these things off. And, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was terrifying. And it, you know, the first few pitches had me kind of psyched and then, yeah, it got, it got really hard. I actually, you know, for a route that I put up, I got off route 
or at least I thought I was just mm-hmm. like chasseneering and Jeff and I were swapping leads. And so, uh, I, I was on this pitch that was really run out on really kind of shitty rock, not super hard, but like everything was like dirty. So you don't feel super secure. And, um, I'm like, man, Jeff must've put this pitch up because I would have put more bolts in this for sure. Cause he was a little more, more of like, uh, trying to keep, keep the bolts yeah. down. And also it had pins on it and there's no way I'm banging pins on, right. a, on a climb like that. I'll just put a bolt in. So, um, yeah, anyway, so no, I mean, it was like, okay. And we survived, but it felt really dangerous. And, uh, Steph was like, why are we doing this? Like, why do I keep like making my birthday happen like this? But, but we had really nice weather. Yeah. Yeah. She sort of does. She's very much into the type two thing um, where she, she likes it afterwards, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty big and it's, but man, it's chossy. I don't Mm. know. And there's other routes on that wall that are harder grades, but I think easier climbs because they're they're safer. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, but anyhow, mudflap girl, go get it. Read read the Mountain Project, and you'll get all psyched. And maybe I'm just old, but I mean, I didn't like it at the time either when we put it up. So yeah, I mean, I really thought it was okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, um, I'm wondering if you happen to <laughs> have to pass people while en route. No, we did not actually. Yeah, I was actually, I thought maybe there'd be some people out there, but no, nobody was out there. <laughs> I mean, I guess it belies the popularity a little bit, the the comments. I'm, I don't think it's that popular. But no, right. we had no one to pass, which is good because I wouldn't have wanted to climb under anybody on that thing. And they wouldn't have wanted to be under us. I mean, we definitely, some on purpose and some by accident knock some choss off because you you have to like a lot of the pitches end by like mantling and like wallowing up a big uh, gravelly ledge that at the very minimum, I mean, you can't help it, but knock at least like gravel off, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm glad we did not have to pass anyone. Well, I bring that up because that's the topic of our discussion today. Totally. (laughs) Um, Our, uh, one of our listeners sent you a, a little, a nice little idea for us to banter about in our segment here. Um, so shout out to Andrew for, uh, doing that, but he, um, not me, I'm not talking about myself in the third person, a different Andrew. Um, it's come to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Delusions of grandeur are just getting worse and worse as the years go on. No, his, his idea is a good one. And it's, um, it's this idea about the protocols and ethics and etiquette, I guess, about passing people on route. And, um, it's something I haven't had to do in quite some time because I don't multi-pitch climb much anymore, but it was a big part of my climbing, uh, back in the day when I was doing that all the time. And, um, if you go to places, you know, any of the obvious hot spots around the country, like Red Rocks or Yosemite or, you know, Tuolumne or something like that, you're going, you're inevitably going to be faced with this question about, um, whether or not you can pass or whether or not you should let someone pass. And I think that the, the ideas and rules about this are quite muddied. And so maybe we can try to make sense of this. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking about it in the context of that route we did this weekend, because I don't know that I would have been very psyched to let anyone pass us but it part of me you have to like i mean we'll have to kind of like figure this out but like i i'll say this i really wouldn't have wanted to be climbing under anybody on that route Mm -hmm. and i and i don't know that 
I would want anyone climbing under me. You know, I can't stop them, but it would have put a lot of stress on our ascent had there been someone below us because I really believe you can't climb it without at least knocking gravel down. And um, it's pretty steep, and we set the blaze out of the way for a reason. They're kind of off to the side, and actually, funnily, I was annoyed by that in a couple spots until I remembered what we were doing when we put it up. Like we needed those belays off way off to the side for the next person to lead the pitches. But, but yeah, so it's an interesting conundrum and I've been on both sides of it. Mm -hmm. Um, wanting to pass when no one let me people coming up and wanting to pass me when I, I didn't really want to let them only because they weren't actually going that fast. So yeah, so let's tease it out. What are your thoughts on, uh, are there any like, hard and fast rules. Well, one thing I was thinking about is, as you might imagine, when I was, uh, my younger self was much more of an asshole about these things. And we got into a groove of like trying to climb fast and simul climb a bunch of stuff and, you know, do, do like these big moderates in Yosemite with, you know, instead of 10 hours, you do it in five or whatever it is. And when you do that, especially on, on all those classics, you have to pass people because there's always going to be a junk show of people doing the the multi-pitch game, quote unquote, the, by the book, you know, the right way. And that's just really slow. And if you want to climb in a popular place like that, you're going to have to pass them. And oftentimes I would find, you know, I forget who my partner was at the time, but we would just, we would just like climb through not even ask questions, like literally sometimes clipping their gear um, at while they're leading, uh, climb around them and then get to the belay above them and just quickly, you know, scamper around as, as best we could. And, you know, one recent multi-pitch climb that I did with my wife a few years ago when she, she was actually pregnant with our daughter and we climbed Castleton on like uh, on the core Ingalls route, which she had never done and I'd never done. And that's like a classic junk show route, you know. And we got stuck behind people all day and it sucked. We could have been, you know, done with the route by noon, but it took us until dark. And I w wanted to pass. Like if it were me and my bro, I think I would have not even asked questions and just like climbed on through in, in that way that I just described. But, you know, my wife, she's not like your wife. <laughs> she likes the the multi-pitch type two adventure fun. She's you know, a great climber, but she just, that's not her cup of tea. And so she has less experience with, with those scenarios. And it felt like kind of rude to her, you know, to like even ask to, to pass someone. And so I deferred to, you know, her sensitivities about that and, and just kind of suffered, uh, you know, s sitting behind the slowest group of three people I've ever seen climb and, <laughs> um, in, in like the blazing, you know, South facing sun and, it was a miserable experience, but, um, but yeah, I think that anyway, I, that's like a long winded way of just saying that I think that depending on who you're with, you can, the answer to that question could look very different. Like you and your partner, like, and your abilities, what your abilities are and what your, I guess how much you care about looking like an asshole can all come into play in terms of how you answer that question. Well, when you when you would do that, because I don't I don't know that I've ever done that actually, where I just blew past somebody without really communicating it. May I can't think of a time, but anyway, did you ever run into people like get in in your grill about? Oh it? yeah, they were gruff. I mean, they were gruff about it. They were not <laughs> happy. Um, but it was just like you know, it was like sorry guys, we're just we're climbing much faster and we're just going through. And it would 
there was no questions asked. It was just, this is what is we're doing. And, um, you know, and that's that. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that now. Um, but as a, you know, being 20 years old, I, I didn't give a shit. You know, I didn't care what people thought about me. And well, yeah, I mean, times have changed, too, because I think this is probably even more pertinent because stuff's gotten so much more crowded mm-hmm. um, since our heyday as as multi-pitch climbers. Although this fall I've researched because I did do a, a route in the black um, as well, but nobody was on that either. Oh, actually, some people came up behind us, but they never caught us. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, the thing about it, there's there's definitely like the the people who want not to be passed, if you will, um, your three three person party. I mean, there is a little bit of a like kindergarten rule where we were here first Mm -hmm. and therefore we get to sort of set the rules of the day, if you will. And that's kind of like, I can't say that you have to let people pass and I can't say that you shouldn't let people pass. It's it's definitely like this gray area Yep. because I've been passed and then those people proceeded to have a mini epic above me and fuck everything up mm-hmm. and slow down or, or it took them a really long time to pass us you know oh we'll just cruise through and all of a sudden like they caught up to us because it was a little bit easier climbing and the harder climbing shuts them down and then we're stuck behind them mm-hmm. so there's like this thing about like you have to weigh the possibilities and and just because someone slowly caught up to you doesn't always mean that it's their right to pass yep because yeah, if they're hauling ass, it's a, it's a whole different thing. So it's not like a hard and fast rule is what I'm getting at. And it's kind of easier to get a hard and fast rule if you want one is, is like I just said, the kindergarten rule is the easiest one to be like, too bad. Like they were here first. You should have gotten up earlier, you know, kind of a thing. I think that a lot of uh, these frustrations come about because people don't really know what the right thing is to do. And mm-hmm. They just don't, they lack the experience to have encountered that, that question enough times to, to be cool about it one way or the other. You know, I think that if you're, if you know that you're going slow and you're on a classic route and, you know, you're prepared to be out all day, you've got like 10 gallons of water and, you know, like every layer that you've uh, ever purchased in your, in your pack and shit like that. Then let people pass because you were, that's your plan. You're planning to be there all day. And who cares mm-hmm. if someone comes up and they're obviously, you know, more competent and faster, just swallow your pride and let them go. You know what I mean? That's the thing right there is it's, there's this whole ego thing that's wrapped up in it and that you feel as though you're being tread upon, but it's really that you're going slow and you know it. Right. And, and you don't like that about yourself, I think. <laughs> One interesting, um, this is kind of like a little offshoot to what we're talking about, but I've seen Honold, uh, while soloing, you know, moderates and red rocks and stuff like come up on this exact same question. And he just plays through basically like climbs around people and climbs through them. And I doubt I somehow doubt that at any point in time, he gets someone who's just like, no, you can't fucking do that. Like down climb, like get out of here. Right, like you're, right. we're here beat first, it. you know, beat yeah. it Honold. But you know, there's also... I mean, I think just to like give the other side to it, there is like real concern about climbing Absolutely. under people. You don't want totally. to be hit by a rock or a cam or a um, body. A Honold's like Honnold. plummeting body, you know? Yeah. You, none of those things you would want to be hit by. And those are all 
on some you know scale of uh, rational fear. It's not irrational, and none of those are irrational, but they're all slightly rational. Like there is a chance that any of those things could happen, and you know I understand that mentality of like we woke up at two a.m. You know, <laughs> to climb three, right. this three pitch route in Red Rocks, and we hiked out here at four a.m. and then we started climbing at five, and now it's you know noon, and we've gotten half a pitch up the wall, and we're you know this is our route for the day. Like we this you know we're slow, too bad, but we don't want to climb under anyone, and I think right. that's a legitimate thing to say. I mean, I don't know. It's like yeah, it's just it's tough. I guess it's like a it's a hard question to answer. That that's like the fundamental thing. I think, and that's, I think, well, I think partially ego plays into it. You don't like getting past because it says you're going slow, but I think the people who have a really put their foot down kind of thing against being passed is that fear of being smoked by a rock. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been involved in an incident where our party pulled off a rock and hit somebody and injured them. Mm. It, It kind of smashed up their hand pretty bad. And it's kind of an interesting, it goes into this whole other thing about responsibility for, for that accident. You know, it was a, on a desert tower, um, a fairly chossy desert tower. And I sort of contend that these people should not have been climbing below us, but yeah, it's just, it becomes this murky thing now. It's like, is now this incident has occurred. And the thing is, is that you, uh, you know, if I pulled off a rock on someone and killed them, I mean, I could go to bed at night thinking like, well, they shouldn't have been down there under us. But I mean, it's going to be a hard thing to live down. Mm -hmm. So there is this, you know, there's this kind of two way street on it. Are you going to accept the responsibility of like dropping someone on them if you pass them? Um, Because it's kind of, I mean, it sort of becomes your responsibility if you, if you start below them and then come up and pass them, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Those incidents happen. They're, they're definitely like a hundred percent, valid fear you know it's not like this has never happened it's not like a straw man argument yeah i mean that's the tricky part like i said we 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 almost couldn't help but pull off a few rocks on this route we were on this weekend and would have hated to have anyone below us and would have hated to climb under anybody yeah i think i might have refused actually to let someone pass us on that route well that's the thing i mean if you start thinking about people as objective hazards the way you do other things in climbing like you know the you go up into the mountains and you know the the cornice looks like fragile that day and the and the temperatures are warming and so you turn around because the objective hazards are telling you like it's not a safe idea to to try to do this route um you know sometimes you like sorry to say you wake up at you get an alpine start and you go out to your route and there's like 10 people on it and it's not really a smart idea to start climbing underneath them. You know, you could right. have to pick a different route or come back a different day or, you know, try your luck a different day. And that sucks. And very few people want to do that. Um, especially on these like really popular trade, you know, five, five, seven to five, ten, you know, routes around the country. Those are the most likely to be crowded with people and, I kind of hate doing those routes because of that. Well, I think the diamond is a is an incredible example here in Colorado, mm-hmm. partially because of the routes on the wall, but also because of the approach gully, the North Chimney, is this you know place where there's you know notorious. There's been plenty of accidents in there. I don't know about deaths, but certainly plenty of accidents because 
it funnels everybody into this one space that's a loose chimney. And it's four or five pitches. Some people solo it. Some people pitch it out. Some people simaclimb it. It's really hard to not have a few things come down. You know, you're like clawing your way up these, again, these sort of like choss ledges and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's a classic thing where people try to get up earlier and earlier to try to get there first. Mm-hmm. And um, you have this issue there where it's not just inconvenience, but being slowed down can be part of your risk assessment where typically, and at least in the old days, I don't know what's going on now with, with climate change, but um, afternoon thunderstorms were super common. And so you were attempting to get up and off the mountain before noon or one o'clock or two o'clock at the latest. And so being slowed down by a party ahead of you becomes this risk assessment thing. Um, so it's rock fall if you're someone's above you, but if you're stuck behind someone, it's like, are we going to get caught out in a lightning storm? You know, so it's, it's funny because it's like all these different things kind of come into play. Well, we're, we're giving credence to all these very legitimate fears, but there's, I think, just to go back to what we talked about quickly, sometimes those um, expressions of, of things that you're concerned about are often just a like a convenient way to mask the fact that you're pissed that someone's going to pass you on a route and <laughs> you don't like that. And, you know, you can, you can poo poo and hold, you know, hold your nose up all you want. The, the idea that someone should be allowed to pass you, you know, and you have all the cards too. You can, you can easily shut them down and say, no, I don't want you to pass. I don't feel comfortable climbing underneath someone. Like you might pull off a rock and hit us and yada, yada, yada. But you know, but, <laughs> but you know, deep down that you're just fucking mad. Well, it's funny too, because then you, if you were to do that, then you spend the rest of the day uncomfortably at these belays with this person who's angry at you. Totally. Um, you're annoyed with them and you're going to, they're going to be right there on your ass for the rest of the day. It's, and that's the other thing about letting so somebody miserable. past you. Yeah. Is sometimes you're just like, yeah, you know, there's that pressure you feel of someone coming up behind you and you're like, I just assume they pass because then I can relax right. and stop worrying about yeah, it. Yeah, that's a good and point. And belays aren't as crowded and, you know, it's it's all that, that, that kind of funny thing. Now, let me ask you about this situation because this has happened to me a lot, especially when I used to guide in Rocky Mountain National Park, is arriving at the base and then having someone show up a few minutes later while you're gearing up and they ask to go because they're going to go really fast. Fuck that. I think that's not cool. <laughs> like, oh, bro, dude, I've done this for so, so many, many times. times. Like, me and my bro are going <sighs> to like send. So can we like, you might, we hop on. Like, you know, you have to size them up. There's a 50-50 chance that they're lying and they're not going to be faster than you. And so you have to kind of like do some profiling. You know, you have to like... Uh-huh. You have to check out how many gobies they've got on their hands and like how dirty their clothes are and whether they're... Were their shoes on the inside of their pack <laughs> yeah. when they showed up or on the outside of their pack? How shiny are their <laughs> carabiners? And there's a, there's a few like little tells that, you know, you can, that can kind of give you a clue into whether this person is full of shit or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because I used to do that as a guide. And I, you know, we, we, we'd be doing these routes I just had ruthlessly wired and I might have two or three clients with me and somebody would show up and be like, oh, you could just, even if they didn't say anything, you could tell like they were super bummed. Mm -hmm. And I would just be like, look, dude, this is the last time you're going to see us today. So just relax, Mm -hmm. like get your stuff together, you know, get your gear laid out because we're going to be gone here. And I can guarantee you 
we're we're gonna go faster than you are so don't worry about it um but yeah and i also remember like this this whole um i used to joke about this whole thing where you get to a parking lot lumpy ridge parking lot at the time uh and everybody's gearing up and everybody's you could just like <laughs> see like the side eye right you know Which and are you going for yeah and just be like so uh <laughs> what are you guys heading out to do like <laughs> Like, not like any concern, you know, like, yeah, just kind of curious, you know. And I would do this every day. Like, I would be in Lumpy Ridge parking lot, mm-hmm. you know, four days a week kind of doing this thing. And I always, I would just be like, they'd be like, hey, what are you guys going to do? And I'd be like, I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then we're like, they're like, well, we're thinking about doing. And I'm always just like, no, you're not. You're not thinking about it. That's what you want to go do. Just tell me what you want to go do, you know? Right. Or the other thing that would happen is I would I would become like this camp director. Like there's this famous <laughs> cliff there called Book. And it's got all these, you know, from five sixes to five nines on it, like classic first multi-pitch trad mm-hmm. kind of venue. And I would get up there and like people would be just kind of milling about. Like, again, like looking at each other and I'd be like, okay, I just come into the crew. I'd be like, all right, what are you guys looking for? Oh, Pair buttress right there. It starts right there. There's two starts. That one's harder, but it's well protected. This one's easier, but it's it's unprotected. Okay, what are you guys looking right. for? J crack right here. Oh, you're also looking for J crack. <laughs> well, why don't you try that one over there? That's called Femp. It's also five nine. Really great route. Maybe better if these guys are heading up this one for you guys to go that. Okay, you guys, where are you headed? Like, you know, okay, we're going up that one too. Blah blah blah. Like, it was just. It was super funny because everybody was like all, nobody wanted to kind of like broach it all. It was all this like casual thing about who's going where and who's doing what. Right. But I um, could see you doing But everybody that. marching out the parking lot was always funny too. And like just scurrying along, trying to get in front of everybody. And just so, this little like root Napoleon. I was, I, I would get, I would just get so, I mean, you can imagine summer after summer, like day after day of just being like, yeah. all right, everybody just fucking come clean. Like, what are you looking to do? You know? <laughs> like, anyhow, but yeah, I mean, it all has to do with that. Like who's getting on what? I can imagine those, a lot of those routes are just like crazy now. Mm-hmm. Although you have to hike further now because they moved the parking lot. Mm-hmm. But anyhow. It's one of the uh, best reasons to climb hard and in my opinion, is because you can just avoid the like five seven to five ten, you know, five star fifty classic super junk show routes across the country, and you can go do some anything else. Um, yeah, and I mean, like everywhere is like that too. Like the Dolomites and all all through Europe, it's the same thing. Like all those like routes from the nineteen thirties to nineteen sixties that are you know these written about and have this history and blah blah blah. They're all like just clogged with junk shows and it's impossible to pass people and and you're just dealing with a a, a crowd of people that just is in, inevitably going to be less experienced like obviously not always like some some people are just tourists and they want to go do you know the this classic route even though they could climb something much harder more cool well that's actually the other thing i was thinking about is that like andrew who sent this and he's uh what is he mega sends on uh his last name's megas mm-hmm. and He's a guide. And so I think he runs into this problem, whether he likes it or not, mm-hmm. because that's the kind of routes that he's often guiding. Right. Um, but that's the kind of thing, too, is I've, I've always been like, well, you know, like you back in the day, like, 
what are you doing on this route? Why don't you just go do something harder and quit fucking worrying about how many people are on the Nutcracker today because right. you wanted to race up it with your buddy. Like, right. you know, go do the moratorium. Go do something that, like, meets your, your level if this is so easy well, for you that you're, like, hauling ass, you know? Well, yeah, but I think that there is, like, you 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 can go do the moratorium and then you also want to go do the DNB on Middle Cathedral and you want to go do, you know, other stuff. Like, you right. want to do those routes and just have... If you want to do those routes, you do them once. You don't have to do them every day. But it's, I mean, that place is just particularly bad about that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, because, yeah, Yosemite's yeah. for sure, like so, the epicenter of how to pass and who to pass and when to pass. Totally. And yeah, I don't know. Well, Red Rocks too, I think. Red Rocks and Yosemite, I think, are probably the worst. The, mm-hmm. the Yeah, the places where you find this the most. I mean, I wish that we could come up with some kind of like easy principle to remember, but I, I or just you know that makes sense or has some kind of like uh, argument behind it. But I can't. I'm kind of struggling to think of one. Um, it just seems like it has to be a case by case basis. I don't recommend people doing what I just described. I did, you know, as a younger man. And yeah, dude, I'd be pissed. About yeah, that. it's like an <laughs> asshole. It's 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 an asshole move for sure. <laughs> um, but of course we're not going to criticize Honold for doing the exact same shit, but without a rope, are we? Yeah, but he's not clipping your shit. Right. That's fair. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't recommend people doing what hey, I do. Hey, we're not above criticizing Honold. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> just being facetious a little bit. Um, yeah, but well, anyway. the so- like we were, Honold is the proxy for the soloist. Mm-hmm. Right. Because... I have been, I've passed people as a soloist. Mm-hmm. I have been passed as a soloist, but or by a soloist, um, particularly our friend Steph Davis, mm-hmm. um, which would freak my clients out. That happened on a number of occasions <laughs> on Lumpy Ridge again. I'd just hear some talking and I'd look down and my clients would be like, there's a woman down there. <laughs> she has like, no rope. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, like, there, I mean, that is a sketch. It's a, it's a, it's a, it makes you uncomfortable mm-hmm. if you're not used to soloing and you don't know who this person is. I mean, it's one thing for, for, you know, Mr. El, Mr. Solo Del Cap to come rolling by, but just some, you know, just some knucklehead mm-hmm. without a rope on, like it freaks everybody out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you do have this, this issue of like, if that person falls in the next hundred feet, that's a, you know, a very sort of, bag of meat type rock rock fall but it ain't going to be pretty Mm -hmm. and so and you don't know who this person is and i actually you know the the one time i only uh soloed past people one time Mm -hmm. and i also would solo routes near other people sometimes this is all happening again on lumpy ridge i stopped i kind of stopped doing it like because i knew it made them uncomfortable and then it made me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to to know that they're over there kind of freaking out because i'm doing this and so, like, I started kind of being like, well, I'm going to solo when I'm alone. And, as, you know, maybe you can see someone off in the distance, but certainly not nearby enough for them to, like, chat with you or to say, or you can hear them talking about you or whatever, because mm-hmm. it would, like, pull me out of the game. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, who knows who this fucking idiot is that's soloing past you, you know, with three beers in his belly and a cigarette behind his ear right. or whatever. So no, totally. there, there's that, too. Like, I mean, it's not like you can stop them because you can 
you know, it's certainly, but yeah. I don't think it's that cool to, to free solo past roped parties. Yeah. For me, what, so, what I was into was soloing too. It doesn't fit. Cause I, I don't, I mean, it was a concentration thing too. That, and besides, you know, if you're soloing up behind somebody and they drop a freaking cam and it clocks you in the face, like that could be the end, you know? <laughs> I think even, yeah, it's, there is like a, you, I think it is important to be sensitive to the discomfort that you place on heap on people who you pass uh, whether you're soloing or even if you're just rope roping past them because inevitably you're gonna be placing like half as much protection as they do or they might feel comfortable doing and they'll look up at you and be like is this guy like just gonna take a 50 fucking footfall right now and like break his leg Mm -hmm. and then we're gonna have to deal with that and so you I, i can see that that discomfort but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's just important to be sensitive. I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I think all of these issues are probably good for more people to just think about and kind of navigate this, you know, these uh, treacherous waters um, out in the wild and make decisions one way or the other. But I, I do think that there is no, there is no like perfect answer to this question. Isn't that what those little knives are for, though? You know those little knives that track climbers. Isn't it about like fucking knife fighting at belays? Isn't that what those are for? Um, I don't know. Do you knife fight with uh with that or with your with your other knife? <laughs> I feel like there was some story where somebody told me that somebody like brandished their knife. They got so pissed about oh. him trying to pass that he like brandished his little his little spider cut. Wow. You're it, like, you whoa, know, buddy, like don't give me a cut paper cut ropes. with that. Yeah. <laughs> those will cut rope though, man. <laughs> That's what they're for. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not a knife. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if there's one thing that we can say about this is if you do pass someone, you should definitely give them a beer in the parking lot. Yeah, for sure. And if they, if you do get past, it's the perfect time to roll a smoke. It's like the worst advice. <laughs> it's like drink more and smoke. That's our solution to this problem. <laughs> It's a solution to all problems, Andrew. (laughs) Smoke them if you got them. Rich Johnston is the president and owner of Vertical World in Seattle, known as America's first climbing gym. He's also the founding chairman of the Climbing Wall Association. Okay, we are here with uh, Rich Johnston, who is the owner of Vertical World, um, a climbing gym up in Seattle. So welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you. Good to be here. So the context of our conversation is a lawsuit that was just in the news um, this summer and uh, involving your gym. And so we're going to talk about that. But it's I think it would be interesting to just start about your personal story and your, your intro into the climbing gym space, because um, as I understand it, Vertical World is the first gym in America. Is that correct? That is my understanding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how did that, um, how did that come to be? Tell us, how did you become the first gym owner in the U S I was an Alpine climber at the time. I wasn't really into rock climbing. So I was down in Argentina with a friend of mine climbing Aconcagua and, um, he was a rock climber, Dan Cawthorn, very accomplished climber. And so you have a lot of time to sit around it in a tent down there and waiting for weather and all that. And I think we were around 20,000 feet. And uh, we were just chatting about rock climbing. And I didn't know much about it. I asked him the question. I said, uh, what do you do to, to train for rock climbing? Because at that time, I was into health clubs and uh, that whole scene and working out. And 
you know, marathon running and all that kind of stuff. So I was familiar with the health club industry, but I, I wasn't that familiar with rock climbing. He said, well, there isn't really anything to do in the wintertime. We just sit around, drink beer and do pull-ups, you know, in the basement. It's like, like okay. I said, well, isn't there a rock climbing gym around? And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? You know, that, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> and so that was in January of uh, 87. And I was working as a complex litigation paralegal at that time in a law firm. So I went back to the States. I, for some reason, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I thought, well, why, why hasn't anybody done that before? And I just hung on to the idea. And so I just started to look at what is rock climbing about? What's the industry about? I got the mailing list for Rock and Ice and Climbing Magazine sent over to me. And I would go into North Face and REI and look at their little corner way in the back. They had the Mario Archer or the Fiore and one rope and a bear carabiner. That was the industry at the time. It was just nothing there. And like, oh, that's interesting. But anyway, to keep, I don't, I can go on and on about that. But uh, in the summer of 87, I contacted Dan. I said, Dan, I, I like this idea. I mean, I, I'm going to keep my job. I, I got some cash. Let's just do this. And he goes, well, do what? <laughs> what do you want to do? And, and how do we do this? Nobody's ever done it before. And so I went and rented a, a crappy little warehouse. Dan and his rock climbing buddies like Greg Child and Tom Hargis and Greg Collum, people, local kind of legends in this area, the, got together and start putting a gym together with a bunch of plywood, uh, Hydroester trowel epoxy and glued rocks on the wall, put gravel on the floor, and a couple months later, we had our, a climbing gym. That's kind of the short version of it. So we're talking about like pre any sort of wall systems then. Um, you guys invented sort of a wall system that involved gluing rocks to the wall. In this area, yeah. I yeah. mean, Dupri was doing stuff in sure. Europe. I mean, there was here's the distinction. There was artificial climbing walls around. They were, they were in Europe, uh, and so – but what we're talking about here is an independent health club-style mm-hmm. facility that's independent from anything else that you walk in by a membership and create this culture of a climbing facility. That was novel. We didn't have access to handholds at that time. Alan Watts, right at that time, was working with Metolius in developing handholds here in the country. Alan Watts is very crucial – to the history here. I mean, he, that guy's amazing. He, we are intertwined, you know, mm-hmm. the, the birth of sport climbing at Smith rocks and the birth of vertical world all kind of happened at the same time. And Metolius was playing around with trying to figure out how to make a handhold back in 88, 87, 88. So it kind of all kind of, it was weird how it all kind of came together at that time. Matter of fact, I was just on the phone with Alan Watts the other day and we were talking about that history and I have to include his history with my history because it's so t- close. And so, and about a couple of years later, Entrepre, we started selling using their handholds. They were brought into the country. And, of course, they were building climbing walls. They were the first wall-building company, really, that came to the States. That gym that started then um, certainly looks much different, but it's, it's a through line to today, right? Yes, it was called Vertical Club. Uh, Dan and I were hanging out in my living room in the, in 87, and we were trying to figure out what to call this business because he I, I made him a partner in the business. And we were, I, had, I used to subscribe to Interview Magazine. Do you remember that Andy Warhol magazine way back in the day? And I'm flipping through it, and I see this full-page ad of Cher in a leather jacket with a, one foot up on a dumbbell 
and looking right into the camera, looking really cool. And then on the side, up and down the ad said Vertical Club. And I'm sitting there looking at it and I flipped it around and I showed it to Dan. I said, that's our name, Vertical Club. <laughs> and I knew at the time, I worked in trademark cases. I said, I knew I was stealing that name. It was owned by Bally's Health Club at the time. And they had a club in New York. But I didn't care because I didn't think this business would do anything. I think nobody <laughs> would care, right? So I knew I was stealing the name. And then, <laughs> so we called it Vertical Club. I still love that name. And and um a few years later, I get a letter from Valley's Health Club that said, change your name. <laughs> I'm like, you got me. Sherry knocks at your door. Excuse yeah. me, sir. <laughs> I said, all right. So I had to go through a name changing process with the federal trademark office. And, and Vertical World was not the name I wanted because the, the idea of saying we're going to go down to the VW just really bothered me. <laughs> and I think you you um, also trademarked your, your claim to being the first gym in the country. Is that also correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, at first, I said I was Seattle's first climbing gym. And that's what I kind of hung my hat on. But then uh, some of the lawyers that I was working with, they said, you know, you should really trademark the claim on America's First. And I thought, you know, why? I mean, this business isn't ever going to go anywhere. It's not going to make any money. And they said, well, 20 years from now, you might appreciate that intellectual property right. Huh. Okay. And so at that time, for some reason, we ended up in every periodical that you can imagine around the country. We were in Climbing Rock and Ice. We were in GQ, we were in uh, Time and Newsweek and interviews all over the place with Tom Brokaw, World News Tonight. And we were in Playboy twice, which was, <laughs> that was really weird. And, um, <laughs> and so I had to compile all these, all that material, tapes and articles and a big box of stuff. And I had to ship that to the trademark office. Because they weren't going to give it to me. They were like, yeah, we can't do that. You know, that's just a slogan. It, and you can't probably prove it. And so I shipped all the stuff to the trademark office. And they looked at it all and they go, huh, all right. Yeah, that's legitimate. So they gave us the trademark for that slogan. <laughs> they shipped the materials back. But strangely, the Playboys were gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, for some reason, I cannot find those. <laughs> I have the original wall hmm. up in my Seattle gym. It's a memorial type thing. You know, oh. it's like sister for people oh, cool. to look at. And so I was very good about kind of uh, preserving a lot of the history. Mm-hmm. And so that wall is sitting up. There was the very first climbing wall that we built in that facility. And it's this gray epoxy painted wall with rocks glued into the plywood. And so people go up there and look at it actually and go like, wow, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> What was the response at the time? I mean, how did like you kind of alluded to this idea that people wouldn't really get the idea of training for rock climbing indoors. It would kind of seem like a silly thing. Um, was there a moment where you kind of realized that this was going to break through or what was the initial response where people kind of skeptical, but they started right. enjoying it? Like, how did that how did that transition come about? It was rough. Uh, I got a lot of pushback from the industry. I mean, I, could, I couldn't get a conversation with REI or the Mountaineers or anybody sort of on that level of the industry. They just didn't want to have anything to do with me. They thought what I was doing was kind of blasphemy. And, you know, you don't bring climbing indoors. And, you know, the only company that really worked with me at that time to help get some uh, energy going in the facility was North Face. 
and they started. They thought that it would be a good idea to sponsor slideshows of climbers from like Europe and you know Kurtica and all these famous alpine climbers coming and do slideshows in the Vertical Club. And they sponsored all those shows for the first year or two, and that really helped us get people kind of psyched about coming into the facility, whether we're climbing or an event, you know that type of thing. So I give them a lot of credit in the early days for helping me out. Because other than that, it was it was a rough go. We, I mean, the, of course, the facility didn't make money for two, three years. You know, it was just, it was ridiculous. And if somebody asked me, says, "Would you do it again?" I said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> I'm glad I did it. I'm don't get me wrong. I, I have, I'm proud of the legacy and sort of the the history that we sit on. But uh, I wouldn't go through that again. <laughs> But a lot of alpine climbers say that about climbing mountains too, right? <laughs> what about you personally? Did you? I mean, you kind of alluded to that the fact that you weren't really a rock climber. Did you? Did you become a rock climber through this gym? I did. Yeah, I was alpine climbing. I say I was loved being in the mountains, and I did that for years. and And I started the gym, and I just fell in love with rock climbing at that point, and that's all I did. I guess that makes you kind of the first uh, gym bred rock climber in the country too. That's a good. I never thought of that. That's a good point. <laughs> Trademark that too. <laughs> That's really. I like that. <laughs> wow. Um. So, in addition to Vertical World, you've also held a perch at the Climbing Wall Association, and so you've kind of had this uh, view over the whole industry. Why don't you just share any thoughts that come to mind about how you've seen things change in America in term from a you know, from a gym perspective. And of course those are drastic changes, but I'd love to just hear your, hear your take on that. In 1994, there was a group of us, all gym owners, Nate Postma, Bob Richards, Peter Mayfield, who started City Rock back in Berkeley or Emeryville, Casey Newman, Ralph Lorenzo, these, all these original people that built gyms in the early days and thought about we have to do something about the industry in terms of getting together, figuring out how to protect us with insurance programs and ad- address risk management issues and things like that. So at the OR show in 94, we all got together in a room. It was really Nate Postma that did this. He's the, he was the guy that got us all together. And uh, I give him a lot of credit for that vision of saying that we have to do this and get people together. So I kind of just tagged along. I was in the room. And they were trying to figure out how to form a, like a nonprofit. What's the structure of it? And what is the mission and all that? And they kind of looked around sort of like, all right, uh, who's going to do this? Who's going to be lead it? And who's going to be the chairman? And I guess they just looked at the guy with the big red nose and the biggest shoes and said, you're doing it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so they picked me. And I don't, I'm not sure why, but Nate, Nate said, you should do it. And I'm like, oh, geez, okay. I don't know. What I, I'm I was doing. thinking maybe you came back from the bathroom and you were like, "So what did you guys do? Oh, we voted on this while you were gone. You're president now." <laughs> kind of, it, that's about right. And so I was the chairman of the at that time was the Climbing Gym Association, and it turned into the CWA later. But I was did that for 17 years. And the changes in that the world of the rock climbing in terms of risk management is is incredible you know, since 94. I mean, back then we were just trying to decide whether gyms should tie in or clip in. And, you know, it's really basic stuff. We didn't have think about all the stuff that we have to deal with now. And it's just like the evolution from 1994 until now is just 
it's hard to get your mind around it. And uh, that's what we're struggling with. The industry's struggling with how to tackle all these kind of new risk management issues that are hitting us over the head right now. You know, we're going to get into the discussion about the legal issues and all that and the lawsuit. We didn't have lawsuits really back in the 90s. It, it was a purely an in, in, inherent risk world. People recognized that rock climbing was, you're going to get hurt if you do this, just like when you're mountain biking or anything else. And so now we've shifted so drastically to, like this lawsuit points out, how the inherent risk doctrine and the respect for recreation law has kind of gone out the window. And that's what's going to create the big problem for the industry. And it's not going to be sustainable. Uh, that's kind of an introduction to my... Well, you know, stuff. it hadn't occurred to me, but you have you mentioned you had this paralegal background. Um, so you're yeah. you're legally minded uh, individual. Perhaps that's why they uh, voted you in as, as president. But um, how, how much was that at top of mind back in the 90s, like thinking about what the liabilities w- might be in, in a situation like this? I mean... Ha- like you could imagine like how gyms could have gone in any direction. Like they could have been strictly, you know, you, you show up and there's a, a person working in the gym whose sole responsibility is to belay or something like that, you know, and you, you um, employ that person's services in your time in the gym and they belay you, you know, because they're under the strict legal, they've, they've got all their, you know, ducks in a row, so to speak legally. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it went the other way where, you know, it's like people can, basically come into a gym and show demonstrate a bit of skills and and then be able to go off on their own and so i i imagine you had some role in steering that direction and i'd love to just know like how that came about well and before you answer uh rich i could also i would also like to mention is that that you know there's always been this specter of liability and i think the big you know the big thing was the the deal with chenard and Black Diamond and um, that particular set of lawsuits or lawsuit that that ushered that era in. I mean, I, I do believe that that's been this like boogeyman that's that's haunted sort of the industry. I was wondering if those sorts of, of things, you know, influenced how you guys were thinking about liability in your gyms. The discussions that we were having back then were a lot of kind of a philosophical way of approaching it instead of like just a strictly a legal approach that we do now. Back then, we were trying to philosophically say that what does it mean for somebody to come in and, into a facility to rock climb, and what is the process? What's the basic process? How do you introduce people to rock climbing through this facility? And so we had discussions about, well, Peter Mayfield, who I still admire and respect, and his he's so visionary in the way he approached the industry back then. And um, I really give him a lot of credit. And I remember this discussion that we were having in the early days about, you know, some, a lot of gyms are clipping in, just clip, clipping into the rope to climb. And we were just saying, well, a lot of us don't really believe philosophically that's the way you should do it because that's not way, the way you do it outdoors. And so Peter Mayfield came up with this. I'd never forget it. We were sitting there in 1994, sitting around a table and going, he said, you know, rock climbing is a thought process. It involves two people working together to go through this process. And you think about how you do the knot. You think about how you put the harness on. You're thinking about the other person and checking them. And that thought process has to be respected in this sport. He said, I firmly believe that everybody that wants to be introduced to rock climbing, the first thing they should learn is how to put the harness on correctly and tie a knot correctly, the figure eight. And everybody just sat around and says, well, that's, that makes all the sense in the world, the thought process. 
what is the thought process in this sport? And I've always hung on to that in the last 30 years, almost 30 years now, is that we have to respect that. And that's a big problem in this industry that is not respected now. Those were sort of the discussions that we had. They weren't really based on, you know, like the legal arguments of inherent risk doctrine and things like that. So how do we just create a culture that works? Those were the discussions in those days. And uh, landing surface, and we said, we all sat around and said, we can't get involved in landing surface arguments. Back then, concrete was the standard. You fall, you're going to get hurt. You know, it's like nowadays they're having all these discussions about how deep your foam should be and which turns out to be irrelevant because if you, if you, you're going to get hurt. You can twist an ankle. You can snap things. You, they, you know, the back in the 90s, we pointed to the gymnastic industry. Is doesn't, they don't have standards on landing surfaces. They can't. They can't test for it. And so, you know, our industry is the same. So we had all those discussions, but we basically back then said, don't fall. <laughs> you don't, you know, bouldering was not a big thing back then, of course. It was all rope climbing. So just don't mess it up. If you do mess it up, you're going to get hurt. And that was, but that we can't say that now. It's like we're in a, a different arena now where we have to almost protect the people from themselves in terms of the lawsuit that I was just in. That's the point that was made to me says you have to protect the customer. They don't need to protect themselves. So that's the big shift from the last 25, 30 years. Can, can we just dwell on that for a second? Because um, you've mentioned the sort of nowadays versus then thing. Like, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the, the, I guess it would be sort of bullet points in the progression. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. What kind of policies or changes did you see sort of eroding this idea that you started with about, about the thought process? You know, if you have any specific examples that made you start to, you know, the hair to come up on the back of your neck, like, I don't know if this is probably the direction we should be seeing. I mean, you mentioned clipping in versus tying in. We still tie in, but then, you know, grigris are often permanently set up on top ropes and things like that. Right, and, right. Yeah. So may- maybe just a little bit about that specific progression. Well, when I stepped away from the CWA in like 2010, it was a, for a big reason. I didn't even become, a, I, I didn't keep my membership. I didn't like where the industry was going. I was really, I think that was a shifting point between 2005 and 2010. I saw the industry mm-hmm. doing things that I didn't like at all. I, some of the stuff that was going on in gyms just bothered me. It was careless. Um, the, the process of orienting the customer was just, not, they weren't doing a good job. And it was the Wild West trying to herd all these gyms together to get them to, like, let's take a closer look at this. It was really hard. It was just the, Like I said, it was like the Wild West. You could don't tell me what to do attitude, and we're going to do what we want. And so then that's where you started seeing lawsuits coming in, really, is that some crazy stuff was going on. That's one issue. Then the next issue is there's a lot of money that came into the industry. And anytime you got a lot of money floating around, then that's a that's an issue, right? Lawyers like money. And then the insurance industry, you know, the monument, thank God, is still hanging in there. You know, I really, I give them a lot of credit. They're the program that works with the CWA. I mean, when we first started the CWA, it was it was about insurance. How do we get the industry together to create a pool for an insurance program? And that was a, a big incentive back in those days. So, you know, I, I'm talking a lot with the insurance people, and they're they're concerned. And there's just more money involved, and 
and now this kind of stuff happens and the personal injury industry is going after it. There was no money in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Why bother suing <laughs> the, guy, the guys that were gluing rocks to the walls? <laughs> no, there's nothing there. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bother. You just get to take some rocks home. That was it. Um, yeah. I am concerned about the way the industry behaves, so I, and I have been for several years, and that's the big shift. I think that the, there's a lot of good operators, great operators. I really respect them, but then there's the... There's a pool out there that's just like, eh, I don't know if you're doing the right thing, you know. For example, I'll give you a big example I think is a shift in the industry. It was when Autoblaze did come in, I resisted them, and I didn't want to put them in the gym. My son, who's from a younger generation, he says, Dad, we have to we have to do it. You know, this is what people want. And I always had that argument. It says, you don't always give the customer what they want. You're supposed to give them what they need, especially in our industry. You know, they don't really need an Autoblaze. We went back and forth for several years on that, and I was really concerned about bringing that into our arena. So I, I compromised. And so I said, look, at one of the philosophical discussions we had back in the 90s is that it's not about the equipment in the facility. It's about the process that you handle with the customer. What happens, all the steps that you take before they even get to the equipment and I said, I want to approach the autoblade as a piece of workout equipment. It's not like it's like any other piece of equipment in the in the facility. So in order for our customers to get to that autoblade, they have to be belay checked and certified, just like the, for top rope and leading before they can touch the autoblade. And that was a drastic move at that time. I don't think I maybe we're the only gym that does that. And that was the only way I was going to compromise to get those things into our facility is that they're treated as not a a substitution for belaying, but just a, a workout equipment, and that they have to be, people have to be certified in order to use them. And so my my team agreed to that the, that the condition, and that's when we brought autoblaze in. But still, I'm looking at the rest of the industry, and we're like, man, you know what? All these gyms are using autoblaze as a substitution to belaying. And it goes all the way back to Peter Mayfield's discussion in 1994. We're not respecting the sport by doing that, in my opinion. People are walking into a facility and say, well, I don't know how to play. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. We'll, just, we'll, we'll do an orientation here on autoblade, and you can just go at it. It's like, oh, I don't know if that's really what we should do to the sport. So that's the big shift for me. I think what I'm hearing you saying, Rich, is that you know back in the 90s, essentially, gyms, uh, the gym philosophy was downstream from the outdoor climbing world ethics. And at some point that flipped essentially where the philosophy mm -hmm. was now downstream of what, what the <clears throat> new gym ethics were, what served the gym's interests in, in, yeah, just a completely, uh, an inverse relationship uh -huh. of, of what, where it had, it had come from. And perhaps that's the source of this dysfunction that you're describing, but Tell us about this um, incident that happened at Vertical World a few years ago that sparked this this lawsuit. What what was the what were the circumstances and what happened? Vandeveer was the plaintiff in the case. Um, in 2019, in August, he, he went into the facility. He'd been coming into the facility many times. I believe he had a membership or a punch card or something. I can't remember. But he had visited the facility many times. He also visited. Um, gyms in Sandy, Utah. He, so he's familiar with rock climbing. He's familiar with the gym atmosphere and all how it works. So he was climbing at the gym. And one day he decided to skip the rules about 
you have to be certified in order to be uh, blade checked in order to use the auto blade and just walked over and started using the auto blade. And then he, what he did is he screwed up his clip. We had somebody watch him do it. They were pretty close. They saw him do the clip. The theory is, is that he didn't finish the clip and got snagged up on the, the blade loop. So he got up to a certain point and he sat back and it didn't hold because when he was on the ground, Autoblay was clip was at the top, retracted with the autoblay. I mean, with the carabiner there sitting there, and so you look at the scenario. It's like something happened, went wrong here. He, the only thing we can surmise is that he screwed up his clip. Nobody can come up with any other proof or theory of what happened. And so the lawsuit was based on uh, basically in the beginning was that we should have taken care of him. We should have clipped him in. We should have supervised him to make sure that he didn't screw that up. And he'd been, he'd used the auto, he admitted in a deposition that he used the auto blaze many times. And we did like, wait a minute, it's just a carabiner. I mean, what are you talking about? How could you blame us for that? And, um, but he took it pretty hard. So they, the case was hinged on the process. They say we screwed up on our process. So the process is that, first of all, when you walk in the gym, there's rules posted and there's a client smart poster saying what's going on. The second stage is oh, do the waiver form at uh, on the, the tablet, which has an orientation video. You have to click on that and watch the video and tells you the rules of the gym and kind of how things work. Then you do the waiver form and then you make a decision after that whether you uh, want to take a blade check or not. Whether you have to be qualified to take a blade check, you have some history. You just can't walk in and take a blade check. So this whole process is pretty extensive. The claim that they came at in the lawsuit was this: Well, I didn't see the rules. The video didn't work. I signed the waiver form, but the waiver form station didn't work, and I couldn't read the waiver form. And somebody at the front counter told me that I can do anything I want. <laughs> it's just like, wait a minute. Okay, in 2019, we had 320,000 check-ins. We had one incident, and it's you that says that all our systems failed in that moment. <laughs> it's like, and so we went after that pretty hard, and I think it was pretty clear that we were very eager to put that in front of the jury to say, "Is do you sound credible that everything that we do failed in a series, like in five minutes? Then we asked the person, Van de Veer, like, Okay, who told you that you can do anything in the gym that you wanted to? Well, I don't remember. Was it a woman? Well, I don't remember. Was it a man? I, I don't remember. Wait a minute. We only have three people that work the counter all the time. and You've been going to that gym a, a lot. You can't tell us anything? <laughs> and so this is kind of falling apart on them. And so what happened is that they, they knew. I don't think they, they knew they were in trouble on that. I, I was anxious to get that in front of the jury. I had to sue my insurance company basically not to settle this case, by the way. And so what the plaintiffs did is they dragged C3, the, the manufacturer of the Perfect Descent Autoblade, into the case, joined me into their product liability consumer protection law, lawsuit, changed the, the face of everything. They got away from whether lo- Vertical Rule was liable for, or gross negligence in terms of operations to consumer protection and product liability. And that changed everything. Because under those laws, if you go into court and you're found 1% liable under the product liability and consumer protection, you have to pay the whole claim. You know, if they're going after you for $3 million and you're only 1%, you pay the whole amount. Whereas on the gross negligence 
liability side on all my operations, it would be it could be shared fault. Like he was responsible for eighty percent of it, and I was responsible for twenty percent. You pay accordingly, like that. But when he shifted over to that other arena, it puts me in an impossible situation to be married to C three, who is screwing things up right and left on behind the scenes, and I was under a lot of pressure to get rid of it. And then um, the reason that this lawsuit settled, though. The main reason is, is because the lawyers screwed up so badly that represented C3. They did things that were very inappropriate during discovery. They withheld information. The judge got so furious at C3 that the judge sanctioned C3 like between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars I have never seen anything like that before. They messed it up so badly, they couldn't get prepared for trial. So C3's insurance company said, we're, we're out of here. we got to get out of this. This is a mess. So they settled for $5 million. And that dragged me in. Since I was tied to their case, I was under a lot of pressure to get rid of my end of it, which had nothing to do with how they originally filed the claim. So this whole mess was all about lawyers screwing it up. And that's why the settlement happened. It didn't happen because of Vanderveer was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with the gross negligence. And so now the insurance company for C3 is suing those attorneys for $5 million. That's what was their strategy is like, yeah, we're going to have to settle this, but we got these guys because they screwed it up. So we're going to go after them for $5 million. That's how we're going to get their money back. But I'm left, I got hung out to dry on it. And tagged along in this mess. I can go on and on on this, but uh, that's kind of. I'm trying to give you the short version. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's. It is a. It's a three-year legal battle, or four years. I guess. Or what five years now? Actually, how many years? Well, it doesn't matter. It's a. It's a bunch of years. Um, and this guy walked away. This guy who didn't. I mean, essentially, the to me the the most relevant facts are some guy walked into your gym. He didn't clip himself correctly to the auto belay. He fell and, uh-huh. you know, blah, blah, blah. A few years later, lots of lawyer fuck ups. You know, he's he's walking away with a six million dollar payout. Um, and of course, you know, yeah. it sounded like he had some some injuries and stuff as well, which is right. which is terrible, of course. But um, the 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 interesting thing about this is what this means for the climbing gym industry, because you said a few years ago when you were kind of taking the the brunt of this lawsuit on you, you, you wanted to stake some kind of ground that would uh, stipulate that this is, this is going to sink the gym industry. Basically, if we allow these kinds of lawsuits to go forward, where people who don't know what they're doing, fuck up in our gyms and then sue us, this is the end of the gym industry, essentially. Like you, it was, it was a little bit, maybe you, mm-hmm. you want to walk that back a little bit, or maybe I'm not mis I'm characterizing it quite right, but it, it had that prophetic, characteristic to what you said a few years ago. Um, so what's your take now? Like, is this, I mean, are the climbing, is the climbing gym industry in trouble? Well, I think it's very similar to what the ski industry went through many years ago when they actually had to get into legislation to come up with a recreation law to protect them. I think that's where we're at. My description of what just happened with the lawsuit, what it's really about in order to, it's called legal extortion in this country. That's what we have because the lawyers get you mired down away from really the, what's tr- the truth and what really happened and mire you into this legal procedures and muddying the waters to, to a point where the insurance companies just 
throw up their hands and say, ah, just pay us out. We don't want to deal with it. It has nothing to do with what really happened in the gym. It's about the process of the legal system screwing it up. Lawyers benefit all from this stuff. And insurance companies who, you know, I had to threaten to sue Allied. And I said, if you sell this, we're coming after you. All they do is just raise the rates and the insurance and then and the gym owner just pays higher. My premiums went up uh, 300% because of this. And so the problem is the, the legal system and the tort. There's not going to be any tort reform because the, lawyer, the, the people who are going to do that are politicians and they're all lawyers that make a lot of money on this stuff. And so we're at a critical point now where like the ski industry was many years ago that we have to take a different approach to protect us because we're not going to get protected by the legal system. It is legal extortion, legalized extortion in this country. You have judges who don't have a backbone and you have personal injury attorneys motivated by millions of dollars to manipulate the system to where they get get the payout. So what do you do? How do you, how do you, and I think legislation is really the only way. And the CWA is working on that. We have local chapters like in Washington and California that are going after the representatives and saying, look, we, you're going to tank us here. If let We're going to go under if we don't do something here. It's not sustainable. So that's kind of where we're at. That's my viewpoint on it. Would that have to happen state by state? Is that the way the ski industry did it? I mean, I live yeah. here in Colorado, and so, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm fairly aware of what that means to buy a lift ticket and, and how that protects, you know, that's like this almost contract you do um, legally to protect yeah. it, you know, and what happens now with liability here is it's people suing each other. Um, you sue, I mean, the recent famous one was Gwyneth Paltrow ran into somebody or something or caused an accident. And so the person who got ran into sued her because they can't sue the, the resort. Um, uh, and is that, is that federal state? What, where did that even come from? Oh, state Colorado okay. was, I believe the kind of a leader in that whole movement. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole industry was, it's it had a lot of money at stake there. So yeah, it's state by state. Mm-hmm. Long process. And Washington, Washington and Colorado are very similar. They have strong heritage in outdoor recreation. And they have a leg up on some place maybe like Alabama or something like that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different for us. But it's just amazing in the last 30 years how the inherent risk doctrine and the recreation laws come under attack with this screwed up system where you can just sue somebody, not be accountable, and get a bunch of money. It's just really it has shifted quite a bit. I mean, is there a way forward in going back, going back to this, the philosophy of, um, you know, creating a gym culture that's downstream from outdoor rock climbing and the things that we value in the outdoors, the, the, you know, the inherent risk doctrine, as you put it, I I like that phrase, by the way. And um, I don't know, just that sense of, of individual responsibility that you kind of assume anytime you step into a wilderness setting. Um, is that right. even possible? Do you think going forward, can the gyms reverse this trend that they've been on? Or is this mm-hmm. going to be something completely new and uh, monstrous going forward? It's going to be new and monstrous. <laughs> the horse is out of the barn. Mm-hmm. It just, you're not going to get it back in. The way that the industry's gone with, um, I mean, bouldering is 
probably the fastest growing part of our industry. And if you go into a bouldering gym, it's a social scene, right? Most, most of the people are not climbing. They're hanging around looking at their phones and chatting about what party they went to. And so it's just totally different now. Um, there's an irony here because we've had these gym to crag initiatives of the, of the past few years, which have been, it's this premise that, um, you know, people in the gym are going to go outside at some point, And so we want them to be prepared to not trash our crags and treat them like, like yeah. gyms, um, with this like kind of convenience oriented mindset. But, uh, there in a way that there, what's also, it sounds like what's also needed is this crag to gym mindset, which is bringing the, the ethics and values of the outdoors into the gyms in order to, in order to make it reflect yeah, the, the that sense of that that philosophical you know grounding of of how to approach a, you know something with inherent risk like rock climbing. I agree. Um, I really love those programs of uh, Leave No Trace and the American Alpine Club and you know the Access Fund. They do a great job in trying to push that ethic. We need more of it. Uh, it can't hurt, that's for sure. And I really do promote those kinds of things. Um, it's a lot of work, though, because if the, the climbing gyms created, the access is way too easy. Somebody can walk into REI and get their, all their shiny shoes and all the gear and walk into our gym and say, I'm a rock climber. I said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You Hold on, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, there's a steps here you have to take. And so... There's a lot of work to be done to educate the public. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's like, I feel like that attitude, you know, you're, you're like, hold on a second, you know, is definitely yeah. like the antithesis of what the industry is doing. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. industry wants, I mean, they want people, they want memberships, they want day passes and they want to remove as many barriers to that as possible. And if uh-huh. there's some you know, curmudgeon at the door, like giving people a hard time about, you know, their skill level. That is uh-huh. the way gyms used to be, but I think it's, they're, they're trying every single possible way to remove those, those barriers as well, because it's, it's how you run a business in terms of turning over day passes and things like that. And I feel like what you're saying is that there's the, the balance has shifted too far to that kind of like make it, you know, as accessible as possible. Don't delay them at the door. Cause I, I, I worked in, um, in the rock creations in the, the late nineties, which were, uh, in LA and orange County and not the one in Salt Lake. And they were pretty progressive gyms. I think at the time, like they had a, I think they were all part of your scene as well. Like this business model idea of like, well, we aren't just facilities for outdoor climbers to train. We now have to create a gym culture because uh-huh. that's how we're going to, go forward financially and that was like one of the first gyms i remember where there was definitely a a big group of people who didn't climb outdoors and never would and were there because it was a cool way to work out but the rules we had in place are were like i mean they were like draconian compared to what uh you know walking into a modern gym is like um and even then it felt like we were it was a little sketchy you know to have (laughs) <laughs> you know, whatever the dad belaying his kids after like a 20 minute class kind of thing or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, right, it's just right. fascinating how the, and I think what you're saying is that that expansion process has made the bed that everybody's in now with, you know, the general population being able to, I think probably look around a modern gym and with a little bit of savvy, find a way to, a way to, like you said, sue them. I mean, you can do all you want with, with training and everything else, but 
that, mm-hmm. you know, that incident proves that anybody can not clip in their thing. I know someone here in this town that, that did the famous now thing where you don't clip in at all and you climb up to the top cause you were a little bit high and like listen to your tunes and you fall off cause you never clipped the damn thing. I mean, how do you prevent that with an experienced climber, you know? That happened in uh, the Boulder Rock Club where somebody died, I remember, years right. ago. That's a totally different uh, – there's research done on that kind of the, – the mind twist that does that. Like that's the same thing as when somebody leaves their baby in the car and just totally walks away and forgets about it and they die, that type of – so the brain kind of just flips off. And when you do something that's out of the ordinary in your routine, your routine – and that's a psychological thing. And I, that happened in our gym. Some guy that was climbing for 30 years, accomplished mountaineer, forgot to clip in and then crushed him. I'm using a wheelchair for a whole year. That That is not a liability issue to me. That's sure. just that, this weird psychological thing that the human beings can get into. And uh, their brain just does a twist and things go wrong. The Vanderveer thing is what I'm worried about. Jokers like that coming in and trying to capitalize on their unaccountability. That's just the bottom line. I, that's driving me crazy. And the, the industry, and I agree with what you're, all the things you're saying, that we've kind of tipped over to the fact that maybe some of the, the industries brings that in on themselves. You know, you create this atmosphere where you're not doing that great of a job. And the thing is that it happened to me and we have one of the strictest right. policies in the country. Right. So what's going to happen to a gym that, yeah, what's going to happen to a gym that's not, doesn't do anything on their orientation. They're going to be, they're going to be gone. So it's, it's, I'm concerned about it. Well, and it also sounds a little bit like, you know, something Andrew and I've been talking about, about like our own, just even in outdoor climbing that, you know, there was a slightly more insular, um, I mean, it was smaller community insular, like we were a little bit, I think, more um, homogenous in our, our, our attitudes and what we had learned and how we had learned. And, and even outdoor climbing has expanded so much that it's just a much different group of people and a lot of different ways in which to get into and a lot of different kind of values that have come into the sport, I think, which is again, kind of an old person thing to do, you know, like, Oh, in the old days we were all this or that. But I feel like, you know, in your first eras of gyms and even my era in in the, in the nineties, early aughts, you know, again, you still had primary or a lot of just outdoor climbers coming into the gym because there was, they were in my case lived in Los Angeles and they, can't go climbing every day. So they're climbing in the gym, bringing those values in. But now volume wise, it's just, it's everyone. And I think you, you know, I can remember an incident at our, our gym where a guy didn't finish his figure eight and he, he fell from the top of the wall and it was just a broken wrist because the walls were frankly not that high and there were padding, you know, but he, he, you know, it's like we administer first aid, we got the ambulance there. And that was the last we heard of it because he was like, yeah, I fucked up my knot you know, but right. right there, there could be an opportunity to be like, well, they should have checked my knot. There should have been someone to, you know, kind of like this whole clipping in thing. So yeah. I don't know I, what I'm quite getting at, but it just seems like volume wise, it's also, I mean, is it, is it that dangerous to climb in a gym? If you think about the amount of day passes that are sold in a, in a year to, to climbers, um, are these incidences expanding? Are they statistically okay for the insurance companies? What, what does the industry look like as far as accidents that are resulting in 
a significant injury beyond like a, a sprained ankle kind of thing. Well, you, that's a good point that you're bringing up. And this is something that I was pushing back in 2019. I said, that, wait a minute, let's, let's look at the data here. And the industry's done a horrible job on data. URSA does a great job on data. They, they have per square foot revenues and how many visitors and all that. So they have all that stuff available to the public and you can learn from it. Our industry has not done that because to your point, it's a very good point that if you compare the injury rate per visit in our industry, it's incredibly low compared to soccer, compared to football, compared to mountain biking, compared to all these other sports. We have very few incidents per visit. Like I said, I had 320,000 visits in 2019 in one incident, and that was Vandeveer. That's a really good data point. And I pushed that on the, the insurance people. I said, why don't you use that more? <laughs> why aren't you using that? Because I think that we have a great track record. Because, you know, gravity creates a lot of fear, and it, just, it sort of insulates people a little bit from screwing up. Because if you have any sense of that fear in you, you're not going to make sure you do it right. Whereas other sports like gymnastics and soccer, that's not inherent risk. That's not involved in that. But there's a lot of injuries in those sports compared to our sport. And so I, I like what I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because I mean, it feels real. Honestly, it feels really safe to me uh, yeah. to climb in a climbing gym. I mean, you know, and you can, we all have our jokes about like, you know, there's the the 17 year old kid running the, the safety checks or whatever, you know, and like well, how much trust do you have in him? But the system does generally feel like it, it for the most part works. And if you guys could, if yeah. the industry could get in that extra level of protection from, from more frivolous type lawsuits or, or legal extortion, as you put it, you would mm -hmm. have a pretty solid footing at that point. So it seems like that almost has to be the answer. It's the beginner, the newbies that create the problems. You're not going to get lawsuits from somebody who's been climbing for 30 years. It's not going to happen. I mean, it's like, <laughs> how do you do that? So it's all the new people coming in, that first visit or the th even the third visit. That, that's where all your risk is. And how do you manage that risk? And that's a huge question in this industry. We've talked about that uh, a few minutes ago. I have my ideas about it, but I'm not going to go back and work in the CWA. I'm, you know, I, I need to pass this on to a, a younger generation to figure it out. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is right now. The legislation is protecting the recreation law and inherent risk doctrine. You're, that's what mm -hmm. you're trying to protect there. How you deal with all these newbies coming in and keeping them like Vandeveer, keeping them from suing us, you know, that's or doing crazy things in your gym. That's a complicated issue. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, you're, you're kind of in that, like running your hands through your hair kind of a uh, phase of like, I can't do it myself. And I did all the work I could do, but you still own a gym. You still are going to, I, I don't think it's, you've put a shingle out to sell it yet. Um, or anything or get out completely. So, you know, thinking back on, on your life in this, in this industry, even though you haven't always agreed with the direction it's gone, I mean, what do you feel, you know, most proud about what you've provided the community with having this, this continual gym there in the Northwest and Seattle for, for this many years? I mean, it, I would assume it's brought you a lot of pride and joy as well. So maybe we could finish on that. Like, what do you think a gym brings to the community that, that we can't, a sale with like, oh, they're doing this bad or that bad. What does it bring that's great? It's all about the people. 
your members, your staff, you are sharing a passion for something. That's what's really gold in in the world that we live in, in this climbing world that you do. There is, that is there. I know that we complain about a lot of people that come into the sport and don't know much about this. They still, there's that hint of, wow, this is something that really, it's a lifestyle. It's a passion. And my, I've had so much joy over the last 36 years of seeing people and have enjoy their passion. We share the passion with each other. The best thing that's ever happened to me is that seeing kids come up through our system, like in the junior programs and kind of the climbing team, it changes their life. And they, they, a lot of them are doing it with their parents too. The parents got their kids into the, a lot of them did anyway, got them into the team because they climb. And then they go out and share that together as a family. And it's like, there's just nothing like it. I mean, it's like, I could have made a lot more money with all the energy and stuff that I <laughs> put into this. And I could have made a lot more money if I would have just worked for some tech company or whatever. I would have been wealthy, but boy, to experience that passion for the outdoors with all these people and the relationships that I've developed in the last 36 years. You know, you're talking about rock creation. I was just down there uh, staying at Blaine's house. You know, I've known him for years. And I love my relationship with him and his love for the outdoors. And so that's what I got out of it. And my son, uh, he grew up in the industry uh, with me. And now he's going to take over my gym. And he... He loves it. I mean, he loves the concept, the, the passion for the outdoors. And you can't beat it. It's there. We can talk negative things about lawsuits and, oh, this is bad and that. But, but the overall feel of I'm involved in the outdoor industry where people have a passion for the outdoors, I can't beat that. And I'm glad that I was involved in that in my career. Have you ever wanted to yell, Check your safety! at your partner while scaling a nearly blank sandstone wall? Have you ever felt like strapping nitroglycerin to your climbing pack just for kicks? It's gonna blow! The nitro! It's gonna blow! Are Ed Veester's movie cameos your secret fetish? I think it's suicide. Then the latest bonus runout for Rope Guns Only is your jam. This time, we take on the perennial butt of climbing movie jokes, Vertical Limit. Our deep and entertaining critique of the last big-budget Hollywood climbing movie can be found with all the other mega bonus material at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, where a few bucks a month gets you into the in-crowd and also helps out the podcast. We can't do this without our rope guns, so head over to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join today. We don't question, we don't argue, you listen to exactly as I say. Today's final bit comes to us from listener, climber, fellow dad, and self-proclaimed normal guy from Boise, Idaho, Alan Keller. His band is called Prairie Mountain Plain, and this song, Northbound and West, is from their latest album, While They Sleep. Check them out on Spotify, links in the show notes.
You've just listened to another episode of the Run Out Podcast. If you like our show, the best way to support us is by giving us money. We don't care about iTunes ratings. You can share it with your friends or don't, whatever. But we are 100% listener supported because we believe this is the best way to stay independent, say what we think, and be accountable to the most important people in our lives, which is you, our listeners. To support our show, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. For as little as $5.14 a month, you can become part of the Runout Nation and get bonus episodes that will titillate your ear holes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.